0: Jonathan Lethem won the National Book Critics Circle Award for his novel Motherless Brooklyn. His latest novel is The Fortress of Solitude, the epic story of two friends, a white boy and a black boy, who grow up in America over the last 30 years. Welcome to the show, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. This is nice. Jonathan, this novel seems to be the completion of a journey for you as a writer towards yourself. Uh, yes, I like that description
1: a lot. It, it, I mean, it, it's, um, it's a book I... Uh, have wanted to write for a long time and and consists of a lot of material that's very, very close to my heart. Uh, You know, in many ways, I I was holding it at bay. Um, You can see uh, evidence of my dipping my toe in the water a little bit with with some of the earlier work and considering issues of race or difference or talking about Brooklyn in various ways that were more indirect or glancing. Um, But in this book, I've really uh, let myself go uh uh completely uh at this this personal material of of you know growing up in in brooklyn in the seventies and and uh and try to talk about all sorts of very thorny unnameable stuff
0: this is an autobiographical book
1: then it is well it's full of autobiographical sentiment unmistakably and um I wanted it to be and so I, I you know saddled Dylan the main character with uh my my Basically, my address growing up, and and he's he's my age, and I sent him to uh, many, although not all of the public schools that I attended when I was growing up in in New York City. But um, it's deceptive at the same time. There are a lot of ways in which the uh, the autobiography is very indirect. Still, in this book, and and you know, I have uh, identified with Dylan, but also with a lot of the other characters very strongly. They're parts of me, and Arthur Lom, the sort of pathetic kid who uh, pretends to have asthma in the book. And uh, uh, Abraham Ebdis, uh Dylan's father, is a character who in many ways is a, a very autobiographical one for me. And then again, you know, on the other hand, Dylan, you know, is kind of bearing the burden of being, I kind of made him into the uh, the er-white boy of Brooklyn. But in fact, there wasn't only one of us. There were dozens. And um, his story represents Uh, not just my own experience and and other stuff that I imagined or dreamed up, but lore and anecdotes that come from my brother's life and from uh, a handful of of friends who went through public school with me. So he's kind of um, carrying a lot of people's stories uh, on his shoulders.
0: Why don't you give us a little idea of the setup of this book?
1: Sure. It's... um it's a long book. It's twice as long as any I've written before, and it takes place over thirty years, which is a much bigger panorama than I've ever tackled. Uh, it goes from nineteen sixty nine to nineteen ninety nine, and basically is structured around the the long, slow, very, very awkward gentrification of a of a particular street in Brooklyn. Um, and uh, in the foreground, living through these changes uh, are well a bunch of kids and their parents but uh first and foremost um one white kid Dylan Ebdus, who we've mentioned already and his uh his best friend a black kid named Mingus Rude who's uh a year ahead of him in school and so um is uh well he's more than a best friend he's also kind of an idol and kind of a protector and kind of a conundrum because he's always uh sort of eluding Dylan just just when Dylan catches up with him uh, Mingus is off into another another grade of school or another uh another form of experience in their uh, in their coming of age story.
0: This novel deals a lot with racial issues and you have a very interesting inversion of minorities in that Dylan is one of the few white kids in a predominantly black neighborhood yet of course the blacks who surround him are the minority in a predominantly white America. Right.
1: Well, and those paradoxes were very much uh, real ones and, and as strange as it may seem to be conscious of the thorniness of that kind of double reverse uh, when you're in fourth or fifth grade, I think I was, and so I've given Dylan and Mingus uh, a lot of awareness of racial stuff. They're not able to enunciate it very well um, and and neither was I for so many years, but um, they're feeling it. You know, They're they know they're in a kind of a uh well, I think in some ways Brooklyn in those years and maybe a lot of the American cities in those years just following um, the civil rights era, you know, we're talking about the very early 70s, uh, were almost a kind of laboratory for um, for race, race relations. And the public schools, which had been, uh, you know, the subject of kind of aggressive desegregation in the period just before – well everyone was living with the legacy of that desegregation and uh trying to work out what it was actually going to mean for people in a real uh a real day-to-day way
0: one of the things you do well in the book is to talk about race relations in a way that doesn't upset annoy but it gets to the heart of it how do you do that well thank you and of course i, I wouldn't want to
1: guarantee that the book isn't upsetting or annoying to, to a reader because, it, you know, it was upsetting and annoying to write in many ways. It was a lot of stuff that's just so treacherous and so um, uncomfortable. People, you know, uh, avoid talking about not just race but class in America, which is another one of the subjects of the book or an overlapping subject. Uh, well, they avoid it for obvious reasons. And I guess what I tried to do if I, if I was lucky enough to thread the needle as you as you suggest, what I tried was to keep all my uh attention very intimate scrupulously personal you know I didn't want to presume to talk on behalf of any group uh or 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 to ever you know risk kind of pontificating about uh sociological or political stuff that I'm just not really qualified to tackle, but instead just just kind of open my mouth and say what I know and Uh, express a lot of feelings that are turbulent ones. They're paradoxical ones. They can't be um, summed up easily in terms of uh, kind of a moral or a policy. Instead, they're
0: kind of permanently uh, conflictual. You do an excellent job of remembering what it was like to be young and also capturing the change. And memory and amnesia are themes in your fiction. I wonder if you'd like to talk about memory as a writer's tool. Well, yeah,
1: I mean it's it's something of an obsession for me and I, you know, as you as you mentioned, I've I've written about amnesia uh recurringly. I, my first two novels really in different ways were both kind of books about lost memory, books about, you know, living in a place where big parts of the world have been forgotten. And um you know, I do think that uh, memory is, you know, the the art of the the novel is very much an art of memory, even if the material is um, is not as directly autobiographical as much of this book is. For me, uh, the novelist still has to hold kind of a matrix of meanings and ideas and words and images. You know, a novel is an, an enormous structure compared to almost any other uh, work of art. You know. Um, it's it's it consists of so many moments and so many images and so many sentences and to to create this enormous matrix of meaning it really is a game of memory for the writer, who does it. Um, I uh, I guess the reason that that's more than just a kind of technical observation um, for me is that I relate it to the way I feel about life itself. It seems to me, living is very much a a, a game of memory, but also of forgetting. You know, you kind of create your your life and your persona not just out of the things you hold on to but the ones you you cut loose the ones you uh censor or or push away or flinch from or 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 quietly put to bed uh if we really lived at every moment in full apprehension of everything we'd ever experienced
0: we'd we'd go pretty
1: quickly crazy
0: but you managed to approach a lot of in- uncomfortable moments for a young man in this novel one of the sequences that I found very striking was the idea of the the yoking,
1: yeah well I can tell you a lot about that. I mean, this is one of the real experiences in my life that I did uh award <laughs> to Dylan. I gave him the the um the challenge of of living through this stuff when i was you know when uh when you grow up in New York and you go to different parts of the country and you uh meet meet people in Vermont or California or wherever you might go, one of the questions you're always asked, and it's usually asked pretty lightly, pretty flippantly, is, uh, oh, you're from New York, ever been mugged? And um, though the question was often meant, I think, very innocently, it was one that kind of tormented me. I didn't have a reply. I didn't know what to say because I knew that the premise of the question, the way it was asked, um, well, what was assumed was a kind of a, a grown-up transaction. You know, we've all seen the New Yorker cartoon version of a mugging. It's like a guy in a handkerchief on his face and a cap. And he asks a well-dressed couple coming out of a movie theater or a play to step into an alley and uh, then says, your money or your life at gunpoint. And that's the kind of mugging that, you know, uh, Kojak or or Batman is always rescuing people from. And, uh, you know, I knew I'd never had that experience. And I I, I knew that that was the question. And so I would say, well, no, but, but I, I'd had another experience that was a constant part of my school days. And it was something more, something more loaded, something more, uh, um, fraught and probably also a little more dangerous than just bullying, even though in many ways it took the form or it had a lot of the, had a lot of resemblances to routine bullying. And that 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 transaction, that experience was um, difficult because it was always um, bearing the burden of a kind of racial conversation that was going on, a very awkward one. It was a kind of racial hazing. It involved uh, saying, you know, you're the white kid, I'm the black kid, so I'm supposed to take your money now and I'm going to do it. And uh, we all know it's kind of a joke and we all know it's kind of a cliche. And, hey, if you go and tattle on me and you tell the teacher or, or your parents uh you're you're taking it way too seriously and you must be a racist because you know I would never do anything to you. Um and really I'm your friend, but give me your give me your pocket change. And if you don't I'm gonna put you in a headlock. And uh I ended up calling this yoking because it was a kind of a street level term that was used for it at the time. And it was something that well, so it was wasn't great to live through, but it it also uh wasn't only or in some ways I should say it wasn't at all uh, only, it wasn't only hostile. It wasn't, it wasn't crime. It was something kind of other. It was a weird form of uh, community making or, or, or uh, conversation that was going on, you know, because it was often the same kid I'd be playing with a week later or even later that day. You know, I might be in a, in a, in a ball game with, with this guy or, or, or with his younger brother. And it was, it was happening between people who were familiar with each other, and it was happening happening in a kind of ritual way. And it always involved this sort of identification of, you know, white boy. You know what that means. Uh, you know, if you act like you're afraid of me, I'm going to think you're a racist, so don't act like you're afraid of me. It was always a kind of bluff experience, and um, it fascinated me in retrospect. It was something that none of us talked about, none of us who went through it or perpetrated it, could ever open our mouths and name it at the time. The silence was part of the experience. But uh, 30, almost 30 years later, uh, 25 years later, I I knew that I had, uh, my fascination had to find a, a language. I had to find a way to talk about it.
0: It's almost a case of attraction and repulsion because they want to establish that you're their friend while also that they control you.
1: Sure, it's about control and it's about self-consciousness and it's about rehearsing possible identities, adult identities that were just in formation, you know. Uh, They were, you know, attuned to the messages the culture was giving them about what their prospects were, you know. And the era that was just to come was was the Reagan era where the gulf between the races and the gulf between classes in America became so grievously uh, exaggerated so violently exaggerated um so they weren't wrong to to be acting out the um the terms of their uh, disenfranchisement in a in a street game level you know um it it uh it always had a a quality of um prophecy to
0: it i think your characters these young men are big fans of comic books they take their inspiration from them and did you do you did you take inspiration from comic books
1: yeah i love comic books i i wasn't uh much of a collector and i I, some of the characters in this book are really uh very obsessive and i was more of a browser i looked over other kids shoulders at their comic books and didn't own so many of my own but um i uh I love them. I, I, I think, you know, it came to seem to me later, I could never have named any of this stuff at the time, that uh, the Marvel comic books that were particularly close to my heart were really full of information about adolescence and about New York City, too. They were being created by a bunch of guys, mostly, mostly Jewish guys who, who, who lived and worked in New York, and they were set in New York, you know, when Spider-Man or the Fantastic Four went, went home from 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 work as a superhero they'd be walking through panels that depicted the city i was growing up in
0: your characters come upon superhero powers could you tell us how and why that happens
1: well i'm not sure i can say why but i can describe it a little bit uh there's a magic ring that uh, floats around this book and it's first in the possession of um basically a guy who's like a bum he's he's a if he ever was an effective superhero, he isn't anymore he's kind of a a wino who's seen around the neighborhood occasionally leaping from rooftop to rooftop, but nobody pays him much attention and and really, it almost seems like the the kids are the only one who notice him at all and um then it uh it falls into the possession of the 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 teenage boys themselves and they because they're teenage boys and they love comics and they identify with transformation and power and you know, they want to be uh, extraordinary. They they flirt with the idea that they're going to become a superhero because they've got possession of this ring. But uh, because the book is more or less a realistic one, uh, it isn't really, even a magic ring doesn't really work that good, not in the real world. So um, it's a kind of faltering uh, attempt uh, to, to, to turn into a superhero.
0: As they grow older, they retain the ring, and the powers change.
1: Yeah, the the ring has this n- nature where it tends to reflect, uh, I guess, like any good um, symbol in a book does. It tends to reflect the internal states of the people who've got it in their possession. So, the ring, you know, when you're a kid, uh, it it it's probably your greatest dream to fly, and so they can fly for a little while. But in adulthood, it changes and and it becomes a little more passive and and uh, and psychologically tormented a, a ring you can't fly anymore you can be invisible which for the for the main character Dylan by the time he's in his 30s uh, that's that's more uh, more his fantasy
0: the main character Dylan his father is a working artist did you live with a working artist
1: oh yeah I uh, I grew up in a, a household with my father was a painter and lots of his friends and 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 you know um my parents milieu was full of uh writers and artists and 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 other kinds of bohemians and political activists my f- family's life was a very r- culturally privileged one uh there was there were so many interesting people moving through the house at any given time and and my father's own art was very exciting to me i you know i i started out wanting to be a painter and Studying it for a while as a, as a high school student
0: his he achieves fame as a artist for science fiction book covers, and there's a great convention experience in there. Could um, you talk about that
1: oh yeah 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 I'm glad you like it i I haven't gotten to talk about that part of the book with very many people but um yeah uh abraham the the painter the dad he uh he's kind of i gave him this sort of exaggerated career where he's you know, every artist, of course, feels at some level there's a pull between the pure work and uh, and and the marketplace, trying to bring uh, bring the work into some kind of relationship to you know making a living or pleasing other people. And Abraham has this problem in Spades because he he he, he works in two completely different modes, and there there's no middle. He he the work he cares about. The work that means so much to him is um, painting he does on film, and it's abstract, and it's this very, very esoteric form of painted film, uh, not unlike the work of a very famous uh, experimental filmmaker named Stan Brakhage. And um, at the other end, he's making a living by painting the dust jackets or the, the, the covers for paperbacks um, that are put on, on um very cheaply published science fiction novels, and he has an enormous self-loathing about doing this work. He he really isn't comfortable with it at all. He doesn't think of it as art, but as as you know, the world is is uh, full of irony, and irony is always waiting to come and uh, sting you on the butt whenever you um, do something in great sincerity. Uh, it's Abraham's fate that the world has no interest in his painted film, and that he becomes renowned for the science fiction. Paperback art that he paints, so he ends up being uh drawn into this world where they want to give him awards and make him uh, the guest of honor at conventions and it's not something he identifies with, but he uh he's he's still seduced he's seduced by the acclaim and uh, so yeah he ends up at this science fiction convention and um, uh, you know uh, talks to a to a group to a group full of worshipful a- acolytes, people who think he's just the cat's pajamas and he kind of patiently kind of um, in a very, uh, you know, he's he's sort of an Eeyore character. He's very, very droopy. And Abraham tries to lecture this audience that is there to give him uh, their love. And the fact that he thinks the work he's doing is valueless. And it's, uh, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a strange scene because of course the more he flagellates himself and says how worthless the work is and how useless he is and how derivative it all is and how if they knew anything about art they would understand that he was just a fake and a pretender the more they think he's being selfless and wonderful and and, and charming and so they they just cheer louder and louder
0: does this re- reflect some of your experience as oh, a writer oh no
1: not not my own really i mean i'm th- some of the uh local color some of the sociology of a science fiction convention, I could never have written if I hadn't hung out at a few of those myself and um and and it was really fun to to kind of write about this milieu that I think no one ever does write about really directly. Um but Abraham's experience in that case isn't my own. I, I I'm a much luckier artist than he is. I'm you know the the poles of uh my passion for art and, and the commerce are so much more closely united in in my experience i i've been really well, well rewarded and and well cared for by the world in that my uh, the work i do that i love the work i do out of out of my own uh eccentric curiosity and passion has been the work that people have uh embraced and so i don't have that self-loathing um i haven't been asked to compromise at all and that's
0: really really a privilege maybe you could talk to us a bit about the freedom of being a midlist writer. Well, though you may not longer be such,
1: I uh, you know, of course, it's a funny term because it's sort of no one, no one wants to be a midlist writer in the the industry. I think um, is dedicated to uh, to er- eradicating the concept of the midlist writer. More and more, I think publishing is very boom and boom or bust oriented, and there are first novelists, and then there are Either, um, you know, stars, or you go home. In a lot of cases, and I'm I'm a really lucky exception. I got to kind of poke along um, in an interesting kind of niche for a while. I was a cult writer, you know, and that's what they that's what they that's the to- more tolerant term they'll give to a to a to a, um, a midlist writer these days is a, a cult writer or a or a critical critic's darling, and I guess I was one of those. Although I've always it it seems so funny to say that as though i didn't have readers who from the very first two would come out and meet me in bookstores and thank me for writing the books it sounds like i'm you know you're you're dissing the people who were supporting you early on by by saying you were only a critic's darling or or you were only a cult writer like they're not in a cult they're readers and and they they were great to me and i just have more of them now that's the only difference um i uh i did however get the uh, the the I had the pleasant experience of moving towards a larger success very quietly and very gradually, so it wasn't a shock to the system. I, I, I kind of built my audience bit by bit, and I think that's how it used to happen for a lot of writers more often and doesn't so much anymore. So, uh, just a an odd bit of publishing luck for me that uh, I was I was allowed to hang around in the in the mid list ranks.
0: You've written two works now of what you might, what I might call motherless fiction could you talk a bit about that and how it relates to your personal
1: yeah sure life? i mean i i think um 3 because i think girl in landscape the novel that precedes motherless brooklyn is uh is really the beginning of my tackling that and uh well it's for, for the simplest possible reason my mother died when i was 14 and um, so there was this and she was a tremendous uh parent a great person to know and um I was lucky to have her for as long as I did but of course there is this uh horrible incompleteness in our in our family life and in my my friendship with with her and as a result I'm very compelled by the image of of well by various images of loss i mean if you look at my work all the way through i've written about uh, there's a kind of a black hole of loss. There's a howling, missing center in the lives of my characters from the very beginning. And early on, I was translating that loss into kind of a very rarefied metaphors. You know, the world would have like a missing piece or amnesia. You know, everyone's forgotten something very important. Or, you know, in in, in my third novel, As She Climbed Across the Table, there's literally like a black hole where everything you love falls into the black hole. Um, and then I stopped being so indirect, and I started writing about uh, about motherlessness quite um, quite directly and quite urgently in *Girl and Landscape*, where the main character, Pella Marsh, loses her mother to cancer in the first couple of chapters of the book, and then is goes on to be in a family that's missing a mother. Um, in fact, that was the most sincere and autobiographical treatment I've ever given it. In Motherless Brooklyn, the, the the book that followed that one, all the main characters are orphans, and they're very curious about women and mothers, and they're very, and they don't have sisters, and they're just sort of the whole world of of everything female is kind of remote and mysterious to them. And then again, in in this new book, Fortress of Solitude, I'm writing about a couple of kids who, whose for different reasons, their mothers are not on the scene. Um, you know, it's it's my way of uh, approaching this this material that means so much to me. Um, and what what fascinates me about loss and about absence is the presence of the absent person or thing. You know, uh, Rachel, the mother mother to Dylan, the main character in *The Fortress of Solitude*, uh, runs away, but she's never very far from Dylan's consciousness. She sends postcards, and uh, you know, he thinks constantly about kind of chasing her finding her, going across the country, and figuring out where she is, and so it's that uh, the enormous force that an absent person can have that uh, I think fascinates me the most
0: could you tell us a bit how you create characters real and imagined, remembering the people you know, your brother, your family and Boil those up into the people who populate your books
1: well I, yeah I, you know it's an instinctive process i um i I don't know that there's anything systematic about it that i could I could kind of offer you as like a method or a policy i i uh, I have freed myself to to work from more and more remembered and and in this book, really like I, like I said before, kind of uh from testimony. Mater- my own material but also the material of my 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 friends and family I've I've actually been really deliberate about evoking memories and people and saying I want to talk about this because I'm kind of writing about this this part of my experience but I you know I can't do it alone I need I need triangulation I need people to tell me w- what it seemed like to them in Brooklyn in in you know 1974 and um at the same time the the essence of fiction the eff- essence of uh of 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 novel writing is uh that everything whether it's imagined or um or remembered or or some odd alchemical combination of the two is translated through uh language the music of of sentences the music of the human voice and Nothing, none of the research I did, none of the memories I had could ever have been realized or could ever have been uh, turned into anything at all like, you know, literature if I hadn't arrived at a voice, first and foremost, that um, could convey the emotions that I uh, wanted to to get at. And it's that voice that's the, the real um, bearer of the meaning of the book, you know, and that's all the All the rest is finally just fuel um for 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 what makes a book work, which is the voice
0: was this voice developed across your novels in all your writing was it was this an arrival point
1: well you know i i um i I guess it looks to me in some ways like uh some of the earlier books were a kind of laboratory where I cooked up one or another of the elements that I would need for this new book, but the voice in this book's very different and and Primarily in being so diverse, you know. My earlier books, I usually found one voice I liked. Uh, I hoped it was a very fluent and interesting and compelling one, and then I kind of ran with it. In this book, the voice changes enormously. There's first person material. There's second person. There's third person. There's past tense and present tense. I work from seven or eight different characters, viewpoints at different times. There's a section of the book that's a fake document. Um, You know, so it's a kind of uh, Trump Loy effect in a way. And um, all of this stuff coexisting in the same book, well, that's a big leap for me. I'd never done anything like that at all. Uh, It's so um, risky. It feels risky to me because it might seem inconsistent or someone might like one part or one voice and then be disappointed that it changes. But I knew that to do justice to the material that I had to surround it with a lot of different methods. I had to have a really big toolkit this time. And so, um I read a lot of books by people I admire that have that kind of freedom of voice. Um you know, a lot of the the, the writing I love most doesn't obey any simple rules, uh, but instead um you know, breaks the rules and switches switches horses in midstream or, you know, changes changes techniques according to what the material demands. Um, and so I I went ahead and just uh, kind of uh, let myself do everything at once in this book.
0: This is, as you said, a much longer book than your other books. How did you go about writing this book? Was this outlined? How, how did you approach this? It's I n- a big project.
1: I never outline. I, I kind of like the challenge of holding it all in my head. I mean, I talked earlier about the art of memory and I think the pressure of the telling, the eagerness to get something on the page that doesn't exist yet, uh, for me that's fostered by um, not taking a lot of notes or writing an outline or or drawing diagrams or, or you know, because I feel that if I did that, it's like the story would be partly told. I would have expelled a lot of the energy. So for me, facing the blank page is the, uh, you know, the daily challenge. I want to push the story into the next. Into its next moments, um, you know, I'm almost like a reader in that way. I'm discovering it as I go along. So, um, apart from jotting down a note here or two, just if I, you know, am sure that I, I've remember, I've thought of a scrap of language that I want to, you know, um, hold on to that I wouldn't want to forget. I'll, I'll write, write myself a post it, stick it on the wall. But for the most part, I, uh,
0: I fly blind. The voice in this is also very lyrical, and beautiful did you go back after putting together all the parts did you go back and join it or did it just come out that way
1: oh you know I don't I don't go back a lot anymore the way I work is a very kind of funny slow but steady you know i I, I think about it almost like a snail's trail or a slugs trail you know I move really incrementally I might write, just write a paragraph or two a day but it's it's like a it's a very complete trail i'm leaving behind me it's it's very finished language and i've usually solved the problems i needed to solve in that given place uh as i go and i don't look back a lot and i don't jump around in time i just uh write the book in one long continuous push in this case uh, you know 4 years music plays a big part in this book and you've written about music before well yeah it's full of music there's i mean one of the main characters um uh, Mingus's dad, Barrett Roode Jr. is a soul musician and then Dylan himself grows up to be a um uh, a rock critic, a rock writer. So uh and I was surrounding myself with music I loved while I was writing the book and I let a lot of it get onto the page. Um soul music and and the Ramones and uh you know early rap, Sugar Hill Records, uh all sorts of stuff, Brian Eno's in there and um it was a great pleasure because i'm writing about something that just you know moves me no end i'm i'm such a fan and uh i wanted to write about that feeling of of you know loving music and kind of pining for music wishing you could be a musician when you're not one um but uh, you know you, you you credit me with having been a, a music writer and it's kind of funny i'm hearing that a lot now and it's a it's a little bit of a sleight of hand because uh I edited a book of of music criticism I edited the year's best music writing um 2 years ago and of course I've given Dylan his career as a rock writer so the the combination of th- those two things I think is kind of fooling people into thinking I have a lot of experience in this world myself but I actually uh don't I I um, I've only ever written three or four pieces about music in my life, and those very, just very passingly. You know, I was never a working journalist of any quality whatsoever.
0: Well, as this is number five, it's, it qualifies now. Yeah. <laughs> There's quite
1: a bit of music here. Yeah, no, it's true. I, I, uh, I wrote about music within the covers of Fortress of Solitude much more than I ever had uh, elsewhere.
0: You mentioned being an editor. You also edited the vintage Book of Amnesia. Could you talk a little bit about being an editor versus being a writer? Well, it's, you know, um, it's fun.
1: It's easy to, to edit a book, a lot easier than writing one. Um, and it's really a place where I go to kind of fool around and play with my enthusiasms and give myself a break. It's almost like a social act compared to writing, which is so solitary. Um, I'm very proud of that vintage book of amnesia. It, it, you know, as we were discussing before, memory and forgetting is a, is a kind of an obsession with me. And when I realized that I had been almost unconsciously collecting examples of amnesia in fiction, um, the book came together very easily. I really only had to look around my own shelves and see that I'd been uh, kind of collecting this stuff um, despite myself, that I had a lot of favorites that uh, could kind of fit that description.
0: In the midst of writing The Fortress of Solitude, the novella, This Shape We're In, came out. A lot of people now are working with the novella. You're seeing a lot more. There's a British publisher, PS Publishing, that's publishing an entire line of novellas. Mm-hmm. Uh could you talk about the attractions of that format and that length?
1: Well, I mean it's uh I'm I'm very proud of that little story and, and it's a beautiful little book. Um very it's elegant gorgeous. object. <laughs> yeah, I'm really it's really fun to 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 hold in your hands. Um but the first thing I should say in answer to your question is it barely qualifies as a novella. It's about fifty pages and uh pretty wide margins at that. so if you you know put that book that's that that piece, the shape we're in in a collection of stories, it would melt right in. It's not as long as most novellas and you know when I think of a novella, I think of the real you know kind of hundred page length hundred and twenty five page you know turn of the screw kind of thing, and it's a form I love I've actually never written at that that length. I've never really tried what feels to me to be a, a true novella, but um, the shape we're in has something of the feel of a novella just because it's so dense. It's 50 pages and they're so full of stuff. It actually is in some ways almost like a compressed novel. Um, I wrote it uh, before I began The Fortress of Solitude, and um, in some ways it's almost a throwback to an earlier style for me. It's like a little bit of a um, afterbirth of Amnesia Moon, my my second novel, and it's it's another amnesia story, in fact. Um, so uh, it was, I think it was a, a palate cleanser between novels.
0: Some tell us about some of your inspirations, the writers who inspired you to write.
1: Well, you know, I I have a couple of major favorites I always haul out when that question is asked. I I you know, when I first stopped reading kids' books. And switched to, to the grown-up shelves. The books that I associate with that first discovery are are still the kind of loom really large for me. Um, and as it happens, a lot of them were, uh, associated either with crime, or science fiction, or some some version of kind of the fantastic. You know, and I, I think a lot about um, the books that seemed to me to be the entrance into my adult reading, and it was two books. It was Lewis Carroll. The Alice books, and it was uh Harriet the Spy and The Long Secret by Louise Fitzhugh. And okay, so one's kind of a fantasy and the other's kind of a crime story, um, both with little girl protagonists. But you know, after I'd read those books, I I was done with children's books and I was moving on to the adult shelves, and the first things I found were fantasies and crime stories. I read uh Robert Heinlein and Ray Bradbury, and I read Graham Greene and 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 Raymond Chandler and Patricia Highsmith and um, and I love these guys and shortly after that I discovered Philip K. Dick and um, and then suddenly Borges and Kafka who were you know this sort of classier version of what what fantasy could be and they wrote these sort of fable fable like dream like pieces and you can see the, the influence of all these writers especially in my earlier work and. Uh, You know, I've had lots of subsequent favorites who've meant a tremendous amount to me. Don DeLillo and, um, you know, Iris Murdoch. You know, I could go on and on. But um, there's still something so very formative about those writers that that I discovered when I was, you know, 12, 13,
0: 14. Could you talk about your interest in your use of elements of the fantastic in your work?
1: Well, I don't... uh, I don't know how articulate I can be on that subject because it's pretty instinctive. You know, what I associate it with, what I've come to realize is that it comes partly out of my father's painting. My father was a figurative expressionist. He still is. He paints that way today. And um, he did something very uh, unselfconsciously, very naturally in his work that I took for granted as a result, which was he would combine observed and imagined figures on the same canvas. He didn't see anything wrong with that. He'd, he'd 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 paint from the model and you'd have you'd you'd know he was doing that because it would be someone sitting there in front of him and or it would be you. Sometimes I was his model. And then he'd paint a, another character on the same uh piece of canvas who was completely uh imaginary and cartoonish and and um and not not observed. And so I did the same thing. I always wanted to write in a way that uh, that combined observation and imagination. It seemed to me uh, much more interesting than ha- than thinking you had to pick between one or the other. And so that's why I also was so thrilled by writers who were doing a similar thing, who freed themselves to write uh, in a literary way but with imaginative elements. It didn't seem to me that there was any prohibition against it. Um Later, when I discovered that some people found that awkward, I was very confused because it, it, it seemed to me, like I say, kind of second nature.
0: And one final piece of minutiae, I have to ask. In this shape or in, there's a scene where they come across a pair of tennis shoes tied together <laughs> and thrown over a telephone wire. Right, wires. right, right. Can you tell me where you found out what that means, what it means? And <laughs> well, let me know. Uh
1: you know, if I ever knew what it means, I've forgotten. It could be that there's some uh, deeply uh, important street signal that that's being conveyed. I mean, it, they were everywhere when I was growing up, and so I just like to put them in books. Um, you know, of course, one, one very strong possibility is that if you see a pair of tennis shoes tied by their laces uh, and thrown up over a lamppost, some little uh, kid had to walk home in his socks because some bully did it to him. But um, whether those shoes dangling there are then a signal from one bully to another that, uh, you know, hey, a, a,
0: a coward lives on this block. I don't know. I can't tell you. We've been speaking with Jonathan Leatham, His latest novel is The Fortress of Solitude. Thanks, Jonathan. Thanks for having me.